When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. So endless energy, impulsive, restless and fidgety, these are all behaviours that many parents may be familiar with. But when does your child's behaviour go from normal to a more serious behavioural disorder? And what happens when children with ADHD enter adulthood? And we'll be uncovering the brain basis of the disorder, asking if genes and diet pave its way. Plus, we'll be talking to an educational psychologist, asking, is it overdiagnosed? And what can parents and teachers do to help those affected? And in the news, we find out how music turns on pleasure pathways in the brain. And we find out what gets a professor up at the crack of dawn with the larks. This is the Naked Neuroscience Podcast with me, Hannah Critchlow, brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. off the programme, I spoke with Terry Laverty, who has recently been diagnosed with ADHD and as a result has co-founded an ADHD support group called Adaptability at Cambridge. I asked him what people with adult ADHD might experience. People with ADHD tend to process their emotions more quickly than people without. So you might find yourself apologising for temper tantrums quite a lot or... um, perhaps not planning ahead and considering the consequences of your actions. You might be addicted to extreme sports or even conversely, um, maybe have more serious addictions and self-medicate with coffee, alcohol or, or even hard drugs. I'd say some some of the flags to look out for could be if you've been through mental health services, for example, with diagnosis of depression, anxiety, even bipolar. Maybe the medication or the treatment isn't working or isn't as effective as you, as you think it should be. That was Terry Laverty, who was diagnosed with adult ADHD at the age of 33. I wanted to find out more about the clinical symptoms and diagnosis of both child and adult ADHD, and so met Dr Sam Chamberlain, clinical lecturer and psychiatrist at Cambridge University. The core symptoms that make up ADHD, there's three kinds essentially. There's impulsivity, there's hyperactivity, and there's inattention. And these aren't just things that we might all have problems with day to day so just you know being at work and not being able to concentrate all the time these are really extreme symptoms that impair what you're doing day to day so just to give a few examples from say children so um, the kind of impulsive symptoms you might get uh, a child might run out into the road unpredictably or put themselves into danger or sort of push in or um, get into trouble with other children so maybe being violent They may also be hyperactive, so you can't sit still in the classroom fidgeting all the time. So if they're at a cinema, they might be uh, unable to sit still and might have to leave. 
And then you've got the uh, inattentive symptoms. So child with ADHD with these symptoms, they might just not be able to concentrate on their schoolwork. They won't achieve as, as they should in many cases. And ADHD is a very treatable condition, and that's why it's important that we recognise it. The symptoms can look a little bit different in adults because many people who grow up with ADHD learn sort of coping strategies. And the kind of things adults with ADHD might see is they might be impulsive, so they might tend to get in trouble with the police. Sometimes they might use uh, illicit drugs or overuse alcohol. Um, they can be hyperactive, so again, similar things as in uh, children, so just not being able to sit still, not being able to... Um, be in one place and just focus on one thing and then the problems with attention again that can affect um, how they do at work but it also can lead to problems in their relationships as well so for a diagnosis of ADHD you have to have some of these symptoms but they have to in what we call functionally impair you in at least two domains so that could be for example uh, in your workplace but also in the home environment another example would be in your social life as well. And can you tell us a little bit about how child and adult ADHD is diagnosed and how common this actually is? So there are uh, a set of criteria that are used to diagnose ADHD and really what's needed here is quite a, a careful and specialist uh, assessment. So if you're worried that your child may have ADHD or if you're an adult with worries you might have ADHD, the first step would really to, to be to see your general practitioner to see whether it's appropriate for you to be referred for a, a more detailed assessment. ADHD is fairly common in children. It depends where you look. It, it does appear to be diagnosed more so in America, so that's raised some worries about whether it's being overdiagnosed. But in fact, for European countries um, and many countries, there's a pretty consistent um, rate of ADHD, which would be maybe 4 to 6% of children will have the condition at some point. In fact, it's one of the most common psychiatric diagnoses that, that we find in, in young people. We know that around 40 to 60% of children with ADHD will still have ADHD symptoms as adults. In many cases, as I mentioned earlier, they may develop coping strategies so the symptoms might become less of a problem. But there'll be a significant proportion of people where it should be treated. So about 1 in 20 children in the UK will be diagnosed with ADHD, with the majority being prescribed medication to help treat it. And half of these will then go on to continue with their symptoms into adulthood. I return to Terry, who set up an adult ADHD group after his diagnosis to help support others with adult ADHD. I wanted to find out, are there any benefits associated with it? I've found actually that people tend to respond really well to my enthusiasm, but at the same time, some people can occasionally get a bit put off because it can be quite intense. I find that people with ADHD can often be quite empathic and be really good with people. And I think there's actually a lot of positivity with ADHD as well. We can be really creative. I asked Sam about this aspect of ADHD. So it's important when we think about ADHD not to think of just the negative things, but to also think whether there might be a reason why ADHD persists, why over evolution has have the symptoms sort of remained in the population, especially in milder forms. So people with mild ADHD symptoms, it might actually be useful in terms of being creative in, in their jobs or uh, coming up with new ideas. So it's not always a negative thing, but I would say that in people who have so the fully blown form of ADHD, then by definition that is really impairing what they're doing day to day. Day. So other than the symptoms that people with the disorder present, what other ways can we start to understand it? To find out, I visited Professor Trevor Robbins, who's head of the Behavioural and Clinical Neuroscience Institute at Cambridge University. So then going to the other levels of analysis, um, 
at a psychological level, we can ask the question, well, what is impulsivity? Is it an abnormality of the reward system, for example? We can ask whether ADHD individuals are somehow under-stimulated or under-aroused so that they need to indulge in this overactivity to get themselves to an optimal level of behaviour. Um, we can ask whether they have problems with reward or if they have problems in what we call executive control of their behaviour, which is often the case, for example, if your frontal lobes are impaired in the brain. At a brain level, we can use quite a lot of evidence from brain imaging to show, for example, that in ADHD there are problems in areas like the frontal lobes. So the grey matter may not be fully formed in these areas or maybe the connections between different areas don't form particularly well. And there is certainly imaging evidence for that. There may also be biochemical evidence in the brain of abnormalities uh, for example, in the neurotransmitters dopamine or noradrenaline. And they've been focused on a lot because these neurotransmitters, which are, of course, chemical messengers, um, are affected by the drugs which are customarily used to treat ADHD. So foremost among these is Ritalin, also called methylphenidate, which is a kind of amphetamine. And amphetamine itself is also used under the name of Adderall. And methylphenidate increases the levels of dopamine and noradrenaline that are available to stimulate the nerve cells. Um, it does this by blocking a molecule called the transporter, which stops these neurotransmitters being catabolized or metabolized. Instead, they're taken back up into the nerve cells. So that's very interesting, the fact that these drugs like Ritalin and amphetamine work suggests that there is some abnormality possibly in these transmitters. So could we use these chemical and structural brain changes in ADHD to help develop biological markers that could help with the diagnosis of the disorder? Back to Sam. I think this is a very exciting area. Um, as I said, the diagnosis of ADHD requires quite a detailed assessment and we don't always get it right. So there is an ongoing uh, search for uh, what we call endophenotypes. Essentially what it means is it's an intermediate marker, so it's a biomarker. It might be a measure of um, your cognitive abilities. It might be a measure of your brain structure that you might work out using a, a simple brain scan. And what we hope is that we'll be able to develop techniques to get more objective diagnosis of ADHD. So you might come into the laboratory and do some different cognitive tests, maybe have a brain scan, and we can use that information to help us uh, clarify what the diagnosis is and work out what treatment will be best for you. Promising experimental results that might help with the diagnosis of ADHD in the future. We now bury our heads into the next level of understanding of ADHD, so genes and the environment. Back to Trevor Robbins for this. At a genetic level, there's also some evidence for the involvement of these chemical messengers because some of the genes that have been linked to ADHD, which turns out to be a very highly heritable condition, um, are implicating dopamine and noradrenaline mechanisms. But this is not to say that we think ADHD is purely a, a genetic condition. Of course it isn't. 
there are very strong environmental determinants and these might be the diet, they might be things like lead poisoning or some toxins in the environment which affect your brain development early on or it may be psychological so there's, there's some evidence that levels of ADHD are greater in those Romanian children who were brought up in horrible adoption homes the level of ADHD-like behaviour is much higher in those in some of those children, suggesting that social deprivation may also play a role in some sense. So those are the, the main levels, I would suggest, by which we can understand ADHD. The level, the psychiatric or the clinical level, the psychological level, the brain level, the neuroscience level, and the genetic and causation level. Thank you Professor Trevor Robbins from Cambridge University and perhaps these genes could also be used to help provide markers for ADHD diagnosis in the future. I now return to Sam to ask more about these genetic and environmental factors associated with ADHD, taking him your questions. First up, Courtney Lily O'Neill got in touch asking, is ADHD hereditary? And if so, by how much? And which genes are involved? Possibly up to 60 or 70% of the um, expression of ADHD is to do with genes. Probably there's many genes that each confer uh, a small risk of developing ADHD. So if you, if you have many of these genes, you might be at heightened risk. The kind of genes that we find to be involved are those involved in brain uh, function, uh, such as genes involved in the noradrenaline system and genes involved in the dopamine system. These are two chemical systems in the brain that help to regulate our cognitive abilities, such as our ability to concentrate on things or suppress impulsive behaviours. And Kirsty Abbey has been in touch asking, are poor diet and ADHD linked? So again, Trevor mentioned these environmental factors like diet being implicated in ADHD, but by how much and what diet is good and what's bad? There isn't any clear-cut evidence that diet plays a big role in ADHD. Uh, that said, there's a lot we don't understand about the causes, so... There is some emerging evidence that omega-3 oils might be helpful in ADHD. There's been some controlled trials of this. Not really enough evidence yet to say to people, in general, you should be going out and taking omega-3 oil uh, supplements, but it is an important area that we're looking into. Thanks, I'm Chamberlain from Cambridge University. I then turn to another expert to find out more about child ADHD. T.O. Gibson got in touch, asking what should parents and teachers do when dealing with kids who have ADHD? Uh, My name's Tom Hughes. I'm a doctoral trainee educational psychologist. I study at the University of Birmingham and work for Cambridgeshire Educational Psychology Service. Um, As part of my role, I work with families and children that have ADHD and typically work with schools and teachers and parents to try and help them cope with aspects of their life. I think typically the parents or the teachers will represent that the children struggle in school either academically or socially you know whilst we would stress with school staff and parents that there are no generic support measures if you like around working for children with ADHD or with children with ADHD they're all different Um, typically there are strategies that work Um, my advice would be to look at the environmental factors around the child and organising the environment to maximise the chances they have of a success. And it may be that there may be environmental cues that help them concentrate in certain environments. So that might be things like 
um, setting up trays to help them manage the inflow and outflow of work, help limit their distractions by setting up workstations, help positioning them near positive role models. And then certainly with parents and teachers, we talk about behaviour management strategies, which are certainly applicable to all children, but maybe more so to children with ADHD. And we would talk about the routines and schedules within school and at home in helping them understand the expectations that they well, the adults have of them and the setting has of them. And I think often children with ADHD need support with things like we would call them calming manipulatives, so things for them to hold in their hands maybe when they're in school and they're starting to get anxious or and they start to feel their attention wandering or uh, providing them escape valves, so allowing them to leave the class if they feel they're starting to get out of control or they can't cope. So um, we would certainly advise parents and teachers on some of those strategies to help them cope. Recent studies have indicated that somewhere between 3 and 12% of children in the UK have been diagnosed with ADHD, and there's certain criticisms that it's over-diagnosed. I just wondered if you could comment on that. I think that's an area that you'd probably hear very different responses from from medical professionals than you may do from educational professionals. Um, there's certainly an argument that the diagnosis of ADHD represents the medicalization of inattention or hyperactivity and those sorts of behaviours. And that medicalization of those behavioural difficulties locates the problem within the child. So there is an argument that would say ADHD is, is better regarded as a cultural construct rather than a bona fide medical disorder. And would you say that medication of these children, in addition to these strategies that you adopt with teachers and also families, would you say that a combination of all three of those are required? I think that's the key, that, that uh, any of the guidelines associated with uh, intervention to support children with ADHD, if medication is involved, it needs to be as part of a coherent, integrated package that might involve... Um, psychological or behavioural interventions, educational advice, and environmental changes. So key to supporting children with ADHD with or without medication often involves managing the environment around them. Ikra Assad has been in touch asking, can ADHD be treated by training children with mind games and video games and quizzes? I haven't seen any information that would talk to whether those are interventions that work for children with ADHD. Whether those would be interventions or rewards, I'm not sure. Rewards, absolutely, I do think, um, as long as the child signs up to what those rewards are, they're gettable, they're clearly understood, um, and generally intrinsic as opposed to extrinsic. So um, something that's important to the child rather than money or or something similar you know we do see those working with all children but they may be particularly useful with uh, for children with ADHD. So for example I like going for bike rides so my reward would be going for a bike ride on Sunday if I'd concentrated during the week. Absolutely and, and part of that is about helping identify what it is about the target that's important and, and being specific enough that the child can understand what it is and then achieve it and I think we are all guilty sometimes of uh, identifying woolly or um, loose targets that are, you know, setting the child up to fail. So investing in that upfront process of setting the targets, getting the child involved and then having a, a reward that's significant and important to them. Again, this is relevant for all children, but will be specifically effective for children with, with ADHD. And then Michael Patella has been in touch asking, kids seem to sit in front of the TV or video games for hours without problem. Are schools not as stimulating 
And if that is the problem, could it be changed? I think all children um, that I work with see some elements of schoolwork more stimulating than others, and it's very different from a individual interest-based activity like sitting on a computer game. Um, the majority of the classes that I go into, if not all of the classes I go into, are stimulating uh, and interesting. I think they may be less stimulating and interesting if you're less likely to attend to the content. If you do have high levels of inattention or hyperactivity, then then it may be that you're less focused on the work that's going on in front of you and more on the distractions around you. And I think that sometimes contributes to the sense of um, not being engaged with the content. Uh, to the question, what could be changed? Well, you know, we would always advise teachers to think about how they would differentiate the content or the process or indeed the outputs of the classroom um, to ensure that uh, children are engaged with whatever work is going on in the class. And lastly, a question from me. So are there any misconceptions or new educational policy that you'd like to mention relevant to ADHD? I think one area that's becoming increasingly well understood at the moment is the psychological impact of an ADHD diagnosis for a child. And so increasingly I meet children now that are in the receipt of a diagnosis and potentially taking medication. And I think as we start to see that effect taking course over a longer term, and the psychological impact of that diagnosis becomes clearer. So um, research now indicates that children who have received an ADHD diagnosis may perceive themselves to be less able than their peers, or it may mean that they perceive their behaviour to be uncontrollable. So I can't cope in this situation, and that's because I have ADHD. As soon as children start to locate the source of their difficulties outside themselves, and it means they don't think it's worth trying, for example, or they're less likely to take responsibility for their success and failure. And clearly in school, that's a a difficulty. Thank you, Tom Hughes, doctoral trainee educational psychologist at Birmingham University. We'll be returning to the topic of diagnosis of ADHD in the neuroscience news. In the meanwhile, if you've got any burning questions about your brain and the nervous system, then just email them to neuroscience at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet us at Naked Neuroscience or you can post on our Facebook page and we'll do our best to answer them for you. Next up, we visit PhD student David Weston for his top neuroscience stories for the month. So the first paper I'd like to talk about ties into this whole theme of attention and ADHD. And as we know, ADHD is quite a tricky disease to diagnose. It involves a subjective opinion from doctors and psychiatrists. As a result, scientists have been looking for a way to identify those who may have ADHD by looking for a structural change in the brain. So a study published this month in Biological Psychiatry has looked not just at the structural differences between the brains of ADHD patients and the general population, but also differences in the connectivity of different brain regions. And what the lead author of this paper, Samuel Cortez, and his colleagues at the Child Study Centre in the USA have found is that the brain connectivity of ADHD patients is actually slightly different from those of normal population. So they measured the connectivity of the brain using a technique called diffusion tensor imaging, which is a type of MRI scan that looks specifically at the connectivity of white matter tracts in the brain. And what kind of things did they find using this technique? They found differences in the white matter tracts of subjects with ADHD, whether they had the ADHD as an adult or as a result of a childhood diagnosis. 
And these white matter tracts are the pathways that connect areas of the brain involved in higher cognitive functions. So this study indicates that changes in brain structure may be persistent in children diagnosed with ADHD that carries forward to adulthood. And this supports the idea that neurological changes made during childhood could stick around during adulthood. So Trevor was talking earlier about grey matter changes in the prefrontal cortex of people with ADHD and how they have reduced grey matter. And this study seems to say that there's also white matter changes as well. And So it's looking at short versus long-term connectivity and finding differences in both with patients with ADHD. Well, I'm going to move on to my paper now and we're going to stick with the subject of brain connectivity, but this time putting a more musical and rewarding twist to it. So music, I hope you agree, seems to be an important aspect of human evolution, culture and society. And Valerie Salimpour and colleagues at McGill University Montreal published a paper in Science this week. Basically, she wanted to get to the bottom of the scientific drive to music. So she took 19 participants and she put them in a donut-shaped fMRI machine, which is basically functional magnetic resonance imaging. So she was measuring levels of oxygen going to particular areas of the brain. And whilst she was measuring this oxygen bursts in the brain... She was playing 30-second sound bites of different tunes to these volunteers. And these were all new tunes that the volunteers hadn't heard before. And then she was watching as different areas of the brain lit up with oxygen. What was the result of the finding? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, when the participant rated that they liked a particular new tune or sound bite, then a bit of their brain called the nucleus accumbens, which is buried deep in the brain, it's involved in reward during addiction, eating and sex. And it's known as the pleasure or reward zone of the brain. And perhaps unsurprisingly, it lit up with oxygen bursts using a money paradigm of buying these tunes over iTunes. But the scientists also found that whilst the volunteers were listening to these different sound bites, different areas of the brain were getting recruited. So oxygen rushing to the auditory cortices, so the bit by your ear, the bit that processes sounds, and also medial prefrontal cortex, which is the region that's involved in making decisions. And then there was also oxygen rushing to the amygdala, which is this small almond-shaped structure that's involved in emotions. And then all of these different areas, these brain areas, were, were connecting with each other and sending information. It's seems to the nucleus accumbens, which was then lighting up, dependent on how these other brain regions were actually talking or communicating to it. So the communication of different areas in the brain could tell us how pleasurable the music that we're listening to is. Well, almost. It's actually the response of the nucleus accumbens that could predict whether the people were likely to buy that this new piece of music that they hadn't heard before. But scientists think that the individual's previous exposure to different environments and different musical scenes might affect those connections which then connect with the nucleus accumbens and drive the, the reward or pleasure response to the music. So listening to music that you really enjoy could have the same effect as something like addiction or sex? I think that's what we're saying here, yeah. So the second paper I'd like to talk about is about the link between ADHD and criminal behaviour. And this paper was published in the Journal of Criminal Behaviour and Mental Health, and it looks at the long-term impacts of having ADHD from childhood. So the effects of ADHD don't stop during adulthood, and a number of studies have shown that diagnosed ADHD is associated with a higher rate of other psychiatric disorders. So the lead author of this paper, Soren Dalsgaard, and his colleagues in Denmark have used data from psychiatric clinics and the Danish National Crime Register to track the criminal records of 206 girls and boys diagnosed with ADHD. 
and they tracked their criminal records up until the time that they were in their early 30s. What they did with this information was to compare the criminal records of those diagnosed with ADHD against the records taken from the general population. And so did they find a link between criminality and ADHD? Yeah, the results showed that the children diagnosed with ADHD were five times more likely to be convicted with a crime compared to the general population. So these results seem to send quite a strong message, but are there any limitations with this study, do you think? Yeah, I mean, the paper is really good in some respects because it's a very wide national level study. But there are a few caveats that we need to consider. The first is that the study focused on children with quite severe ADHD. And as we know, the disorder varies in its severity. So we can't make generalised conclusions about ADHD based on these very specific cases. That was David Weston from Cambridge University. I returned to psychiatrist Dr Sam Chamberlain to get his comments on that last news story. So it's a really interesting paper and what it seems to be showing is that if you follow uh, children with ADHD up over time, they are at increased uh, risk of being involved in the criminal justice system and according to this research it may be up to half of children with ADHD who then at some point have some contact with the criminal justice system. We know from research conducted elsewhere that treatment does seem to reduce that risk of getting in trouble with the police. I think this uh, research and other research like it really emphasises the need that we don't forget about ADHD in adults. So there's increasing awareness about ADHD in children, but still I would argue not enough awareness. But let's not forget the adults with a condition as well. And if you want to find out more about any of those stories, the references are all on our website. That's thenakedscientists.com forward slash neuroscience. Also on our website, you can find information on what to do if you suspect you have ADHD. The support group's available, and you can find out about volunteering for a research study on ADHD. And closing this month's show, we turn our attention to a completely different topic to find out what gets Professor Nikki Clayton from Cambridge University leaping out of her bed with the larks. Bird brain, never more. There's something spectacular about songbirds, the sight of their wonderful wings, the sound of their melodious serenades, and the sheer beauty of their synchronous dancing displays. Perhaps the most intriguing question of all, however, is what lies beneath that beady eye. Until quite recently, it was assumed that birds were rather simple creatures with little ability to think. We now know that's not true. The mistake arose because the bird's brain has a very different structure to that of mammals, bereft as it is of the six-layered structure of our cortex, which has long been thought to provide the unique machinery for intelligence. History has it that when the anatomist Ludwig Edinger first proposed the nomenclature for the various brain regions, he thought that most of the avian brain matter was derived from the striatum and basal ganglia. Indeed, in mammals these regions do have a striated appearance. But we now know that birds do have a cortex. Indeed, a large part of the bird's brain that lies above the basal ganglia is now recognised to be both functionally and developmentally akin to the mammalian cortex. The difference, however, is that rather than producing a layered cortex as mammals do, the bird cortex has a nucleated structure. It's made of the same types of cells and has the same kind of connections, but with a different architectural design. It's a weight-saving device for the birds, just like their hollow bones. So by analogy with cakes, 
The bird brain is more like a fruitcake, whereas the mammalian brain is more like an Austrian Sachertorte. So next time you hear the derogatory term bird brain, take it as a compliment. Brainy birds. For some songbirds are indeed quite brainy. Consider the crows. They have become known as feathered apes because their intellectual capabilities are actually on a par with chimpanzees. That was Professor Nikki Clayton explaining her intrigue with bird brains. That's all for now. I'll be back again next month to switch on our brain pleasure zone with music. We'll be finding out about the role of music to our ancestors' evolving brains and we'll be exploring hip-hop psyche, so lyrics and mental health stigma. This Naked Neuroscience podcast has been brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. See you next month to open our minds. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.